spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered it. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. The magic of the new year is in the air. It's episode 246 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and one of the reasons I love this time of year is that it's not just the favorite shows coming back from the fall, but it's mid-season premiere time, and we're going to be jumping into that with the cast of The Magicians. Finally, going to share my interviews with them from San Diego Comic-Con last year to get you ready for this upcoming season. After the way that season three ended, it is going to be a crazy, bonkers season of The Magicians coming up, so we'll talk about that. A couple of premieres that we'll talk about that have already happened as well. How about Young Justice Outsiders? We'll talk about the premiere of that. And Gotham, the season five premiere. Yep, plenty of spoilers ahead, but not next, though, because it's what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Aaron Campbell, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Drag out the long box, pull out the tablet or the laptop, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading, and it's time for the first time in 2019 to dive into a Marvel book. So let's do Champions number 1 from Marvel. It's written by Jim Zub. Stephen Cummings on the art, if that team sounds familiar, it's the same team that does Wayward for Image Comics. We had Stephen Cummings on the show a couple years ago, actually. Marcio Menes and Eric Arseniga on the colors. VCs Clayton Cowles on the letters. And Kim Jacinto and Rain Barredo on the cover art. Now, to say that there are a lot of members of this champions team now is kind of an understatement. Of course, it's led by Miss Marvel. You have Amadeus Che, though. You have Vivision is there. Miles Morales is Spider-Man is there. And then you have Sam, who used to be a Nova. No Nova powers anymore. Other than that, I mean, if I could sit here and list every member of this team now, I we kind of be here all day, so I'm not going to do that. But what I can tell you is that it's a giant team, and they and Miss Marvel's built this big team because she wants to do as much good as she possibly can. As a matter of fact, there's a trifecta of missions going on in this book, and being that this is spoiler free, I can't really tell you about any of them. Just I can tell you that each team was strategically chosen for the task that was at hand, and Miss Marvel's sitting there; she's trying to coordinate everything, and then. Her and her A team, or her actual, well, she was the C team at this point, was trying would get a chance to jump in on their own as well. And it's it's funny because the, there was a lot of fun that was had in this book. You could just feel it. I mean, everybody was super excited. There's all these young heroes who are just eager to make a difference. And I think that it's kind of a metaphor for what Marvel's been trying to do anyway, and that's to get these young heroes their own spotlight. So to push them to the forefront in this book, I think it's kind of, a, a, again, a metaphor for what Marvel's been trying to do all along. But now they've brought them all together, and it really feels like, as a unit, it all seems to really work out quite well. Even though there's a ton of them, there's not really a whole lot. I mean, they tell you exactly who each one is in the book and everything like that, so it's not like you don't know who any of these heroes are because there's literally labels on them when they first appear, and you can re- you can reference back. If you absolutely have to. But you just get this sense of fun. And everybody's doing good. And 
you know, there is some danger involved here, but very minimal, at least in the beginning anyway. There's no sense of dread. At least I wouldn't consider any sense of dread anyway. But then, you know, just when it seems like everything's all right, it isn't. I mean, it literally feels like everything goes off without a hitch. But then there's a couple of the members of the team where it seems like something happens. Matter of fact, in the middle of this book, there's something that kind of jumps out. And it's just a very simple page of art during one of the missions. It's a full page thing. And it really stands out. And at the time, it's one of those things where you could almost brush off. But then you think, well, maybe there was more to what I just saw there. Once you see what happens a little bit later on in the book. And there's something going on with one character in particular who I won't call out by name here. But then you see something that happens at the end of the book and you wonder if all of this good fortune might have been for a reason that really sets up something very, very interesting and a question that will definitely need to be answered in the next issue. I don't think you can leave this hanging for too long anyway, but it, it, you know, it's funny because Jim, Jim Zub just does such a great job with these bring, bringing the fun out in these characters in this story. And that's one thing that I, that I kind of missed when I would read Marvel books is stuff that's, that's just fun for the sake of being fun. And I felt like this really was, and, and and it didn't feel crammed in. That's another criticism I've had of Marvel too, is that when they do books like this stuff just feels very crammed in this didn't. And it was just good seeing Miss Marvel up there as a leader. And she even says in the book at one point, you know, like I never thought I'd be in this position, but it seems like she just really, everybody in this book just wants to do good. And that just gives you a really, really good feeling. Stephen Cummings, if you've seen his art in Wayward, you know the job that he can do. Definitely does not disappoint in this book either. The entire art team definitely needs to be praised for this. Everything was just very eye-catching, very extremely detailed each down to each character. And there was a lot to keep track of here. So bravo to everybody involved. Happy to say my first review of a Marvel book this week and this year is a poll. I got to have more champions. So champions number one, definitely going to want to add that to your poll box. Here's something that we could celebrate right here at the beginning of the year. And that's the return of low from image comics. Hard to believe it's already at the 20th issue. So low number 20 from Rick Remender. Of course we had him in the show to talk about low, you know, years ago as well. And of course the great Greg Tocchini, is back on the art, David Craig, excuse me, Dave McCraig on the colors, Russ Wooten on the letters. Now, basically, if you're not familiar with the story of Lowe, the, the, it was a scorched earth type of thing. The sun's coming down. The earth's surface was inhabitable, so everybody had to kind of ex- escape to the depths of the oceans to sort of get away from the scorched earth and the radiation. But, you know, now things aren't going so well down there in the habitats down beneath the surface. So now, Stel Kane, who is our main character in Low, has kind of tried to venture up to the surface to try and find out information on how they might be able to escape to another planet at this point because Earth, just it's just not happening anymore. And she's had to deal with a lot. So a little bit of a spoiler if you haven't read any of the previous issues of Low, She's had to deal with a lot of loss and a lot of sacrifices that she's need to make in this in this mission, I mean, losing her children, losing her husband. I mean, and but she has this positivity about her that's, I don't know if you'd call it naive or if you'd call it refreshing. It's just that her positivity 
really shine through these previous issues. But with everything she's gone through, you, you'd kind of understand if there was a little bit of a crack in, a, in that armor, right? Now, there's a very nice write-up at the very beginning of this book to remind you of what's happened. It's been a, been a while since we've been able to get the last issue of Low, and it's been a while since I've read it too, so I, I needed a little bit of a catch-up and a reminder of what was going on. And basically, you remember that Stell was trying to get a probe to try and get information on where they might be able to escape to the last two, the last two domes that are left. Now, there were more domes before that, and that is one answer that we do get in this issue. If you're a fan of Low, we do get answers as to what happened to those other domes. We also get answers to what happened with the probe if you read the last issue of Low and everything that happened there. But there's a lot of just crazy stuff happening in this issue. I really don't know how to describe it. It's almost like you're being pulled between flashbacks and present day, but everything feels like it's happening at this particular moment when you're reading it. And when you're dealing with flashbacks or visions, whatever you want to call them about what's going on here, it to make them just present and just give you the heart palpitations when you're reading it at that particular moment, first of all, lets me know that no matter how much time passes, I'm still going to care about Stel Kane and these characters. But it also tells me that Rick Remender knows how to keep his story at an absolute pace that keeps you locked in for the entire issue. And I still think, and I, I've said this before, and I stick by it, that Lowe is one of the most beautifully drawn series of comics I've ever read in my entire life. And that is a testament to Greg Ticini and the group. because, And that's one of the reasons, and this was actually written at the end of the book, and Rick Remender said, hey, one of the reasons we've been gone for so long is, you know, we wanted these pages to be beautiful for you guys. And they've been slaving away at this. So we hope you appreciate it. So Rick, at least for, for, as far as I'm concerned, I appreciate the hell out of it because I always thought that Lowe was beautiful beneath the surface. Now reaching the surface and exploring this vast new part of the story that we haven't had, gotten a chance to look at before, just as gorgeous as it has been before. So I just I love this book. I love the family dynamic. There's so many twists and turns in it. And it takes another huge twist and a turn in this issue as well. And you get to find out a little piece, piece of information about this family, about Stell's family, the Kane family, and where things are going. And uh, it's it's really shocking for her. And you, and you just feel like you wonder if, if it's all going to be too much for her at some point. And if we reach that point in this issue, I'm not going to tell you that. You know I'm not going to give you that answer. But what I can tell you is there's a very climactic point at the end of this book. And this book, yes, is leading towards its conclusion. And you really get that sense when you read these final few pages of this 20th issue. It's like, okay, now the stage is set for this final arc. The stage is set for the final issues of Low. And I got to tell you, based on what I saw, I don't know how it's going to play out. But I am all in for it. This is a pull for me. It has been from the beginning. I can't, I'm so happy that Lowe is back and I can't wait to read more because this is just a story that, this is one of those ones that I would recommend going back and reading from the beginning or if you haven't read it yet, go do that because this is one of those books that to me that has flown under the radar 
kind of pun intended there since we're talking about a book that's based under the ocean. This is one of those books that gets really underappreciated, especially in, in a, the Rick Remender's written so many great stories. This one to me, low, is one that should be right up there as one of the best. That's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, a double dose of geek tainment and starting with Young Justice Outsiders next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is voice actor Roger Craig Smith, and you guys are listening, you lucky people, to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And we're back. If you feel like you've been waiting forever for this, you have, and it is finally here. Young Justice Outsiders from DC Universe. Of course, you know Young Justice Season 3, if you want to call it that, is here, and a lot of spoilers up ahead. I will warn you about that right now for the first episode. Not going to go into Episodes 2 and 3 just for the first episode. So yes, there will be some spoilers. Consider this your very fair and advanced warning talking about Young Justice Outsiders. Now, things pick up. It's basically a two-year time jump from the way things look at the start of this episode. And a lot of this has to do with metahuman trafficking. You saw a lot of that in the trailer for Young Justice Outsiders already. But not only that, But there is some turmoil going on with the Justice League, and that's one of the things I want to start off by talking about. Basically, Lex Luthor has hamstrung the Justice League. They can't really get anything done. You see Dick Grayson, Nightwing, leave the team very, very early on, leave the Young Justice team to go kind of do his own thing after everything that happened with Wally. Dick just couldn't stick around with the team anymore. Everybody understood, and he went his separate ways. Now the League is involved. Looks like Lex Luthor has hamstrung the League. And Batman is the vocal one here. No surprise there, right? And Batman walks away. Tenders his resignation from the Justice League. Takes Green Arrow with him and a couple of others as well. Now, Aqualad, we'll call him Aquaman for these purposes because that's what he's referred to as. He's the team leader now of of Young Justice. So that's how we're going to refer to him. He's kind of stuck in a rock and a hard place. And you've also got Miss Martian, who's one of the leaders of the group, as well. And he's basically saying, you know, screw Batman. If he wants to leave, let him leave. Let's disavow him because we're going to do our own thing and Batman's going to do his. And then we hear the line Batman Incorporated dropped. So we could have a whole Justice League and Batman Incorporated thing in two different ways to fight this metahuman trafficking. Because Batman says that the laws that are going on have hamstrung the league internationally so much they can't really do what they need to do to keep people safe, and there's no point in having the league anymore. And others seem to disagree, Wonder Woman being one of them, by the way. So there's turmoil inside the league itself, which I think is actually very, very interesting. And then you have the other part of this story, which is the metahuman trafficking. And, of course, you've got Markovia and Princess of Markovia, who has been missing for those two years. Now, we do see her get kidnapped earlier on in the episode, and something happens with her, actually. And it has to do with Black Lightning. And Black Lightning, when he's trying to subdue her in her metahuman form, doesn't know that it's a girl or or a human girl, anything like that. To him, this is a metahuman that he needs to subdue. And she ends up dying in the process. That's the that's the interesting thing. Another interesting thing that kind of sets this whole thing into motion is that that is a huge effect on Jefferson Pierce. A huge effect on Black Lightning. He ends up walking away as well. So all this turmoil that's going on, and in Markovia, they're trying to figure out. Well, they still don't know what's happened to the princess. Although they know, 
she's gone missing, except for Brion. That's right, Brion Markov, as Troy Baker pointed out to us at San Diego Comic-Con, who kind of suspects something's up, kind of suspects that this whole metahuman thing might have something to do with his sister's disappearance. So he gets tested to find out if he has the metahuman gene and to see if maybe, just maybe, there's more to it going on here than what me- what might meets the eye for his sister's appearance. And then Markovia kind of pledges all their support against metahuman trafficking. And that kind of gets the king and queen taken out. Now their security advisor is kind of taking hold. There's martial law and everything is crazy in Markovia right now. And you, you have to smell a rat in this whole thing. And how much is Markovia tied in to this whole metahuman trafficking thing? And Dick Grayson, by the way, it's him and Oracle basically by themselves. So they're going to head to Markovia to find out what's going on because they've kind of made those connections. They've backtracked things a little bit. They've made a couple of busts of their own on the metahuman trafficking. So now they're putting their own team together. And you've got Superboy that's going to be involved. You've got, they actually convinced Jefferson Pierce Black Lightning to go with them, but there's something wrong with his powers. So essentially you could have three different teams all going here. We do get to see a quick shot of Artemis and what's going on with her. She seems sort of out of the life herself, but maybe not because Dick Grayson comes to pull her back in for this investigation. And that's kind of where we're left with what happens in Markovia and kind of that revelation that we get from the Markovs and knowing that the security advisor might not necessarily be on the up and up and that there's going to be a transitional period for the throne that none of this seems quite kosher. And that's where it's kind of left. So the one thing that I really love about this season so far in this first episode is it's intriguing as hell. It really, really is. I am drawn in from so many different angles, not just being a Young Justice fan, but just drawn in as a love for these characters, wondering where all these different things are going to go and bringing in characters like Black Lightning and him not being able to do his thing anymore or be a mentor anymore. And then you've got Batman and Green Arrow sort of walking away and it puts Green Arrow and Black Canary at odds as well. That's another one of the interesting things. There are so many different aspects. Of course, you have this relationship between Superboy and Miss Martian that's explored as well. You've got the League, and there's so many characters going on, but nothing feels forced. Nothing feels crammed in. Nothing feels like, oh, there's way too many characters going on here. Now, there's a lot going on at once, and there's certainly plenty to keep track of, but none of it seems overwhelming. Even if you haven't watched the first two seasons of Young Justice, which I do recommend, by the way. That way you can get a better feel for what's going on, and you will have a little bit more of an impact for what's going on as well. So while it's not 100% necessary, I would recommend it, not just because, I mean, the first two seasons were great, but because it will help you out along the way. But there's enough new story here that I think if you just wanted to pick up from this third season, at least in this first episode anyway. Now, keep in mind, one episode in, that could change. There could be plenty more Easter eggs that you're not going to know what's going on if you haven't seen the first two seasons of Young Justice. But I feel like, at least for this initial story, you could go ahead and jump in and you'd be fine. But there's so many balls in the air right now. So many characters that you're going to see. And that was kind of teased at San Diego Comic-Con, wasn't it? It was like almost no character is off limits for the show. We saw it in the trailer, and that's certainly prevalent in this first episode as well. This just feels very high-end. It feels like not only does it not miss a beat, from the previous Young Justice, this is upping the game 
quite a bit, I think, especially storyline-wise, in talking about metahuman trafficking. And there's a lot of tones here that you could set, a lot of different stories and a lot of angles that you can explore. So this vast world is just opened up for young justice outsiders. And this, it was hard because the, the hype was so big for this season of Young Justice Outsiders. Not only do I think it matches it, I think it actually raises the bar for itself a little bit just in this first episode. And it really makes me want, this is going to be one of those shows that is extremely bingeable, if you ask me. And yeah, I might have dropped plenty of spoilers in this review, but guess what? That barely even scratches the surface. There's plenty of stuff that I didn't even get to, plenty of stuff that we haven't even seen yet in this first episode that we know is coming just by little hints that are dropped. So it's not like I really gave that much away either. I'm just setting the tone for you. There's so much to look forward to in this season of Young Justice Outsiders. I'm telling you right now, you better block off some time. I have a feeling this is going to be one of those shows that once you start watching, you're not going to want to stop. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the first episode of Young Justice Outsiders from DC Universe. Up next, it's time to head to No Man's Land. It's the Gotham Season 5 premiere. More spoilers next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Jessica Lucas from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's exciting but sad at the same time to be talking about the premiere of the fifth and final season of Gotham from Fox. And yeah, plenty of spoilers ahead for the review of this very first episode, which, which picks up a little bit about a couple of months since the events of the season four finale. And Gotham is in absolute shambles. As a matter of fact, nobody allowed in or out of Gotham. Nobody's sending relief. Everybody's been, it, stuff's running out. And everybody has their own little section. You have Penguin, who runs his part. You've got Barbara and the Sirens who run theirs. You've got Scarecrow as a little piece, and then Jim Gordon has his own piece. And that's where a big part of the story lies, is that Jim Gordon's basically taking in the refugees of Gotham, taking in everybody who just needs help, who won't be able to survive on their own, or who is not a part of Penguin's group or of Scarecrow's group. That means you're talking about basic things like food and medicine, shelter, having enough shelter, and you've got Lucius that's trying to help out. You've got Bruce that's trying to help the people out as well. I'll talk about that in just a second, but Bruce has plenty to deal with as well. I mean, you remember what happened with Selena and Jeremiah. Well, looks like Selena, she did survive, but she is definitely paralyzed. She's in very dire straits, and that might be the darkest part of this whole episode is is what's going on with Selena. Despite everything else that's dark, that's going on in this episode, and there's plenty. This one might be the bleakest. And Cameron Beacondova, I got to give her a huge amount of credit for this because, man, she is absolutely amazing in this episode. As sad I mean, I felt so much for Selena in this episode. And she just basically, she doesn't want to live anymore. She wants to be done. And, and she doesn't understand why she didn't die. When this happened, and it's just so devastating. You've got Bruce trying to do everything he can to not only make her well, but physically, but mentally as well, and just nothing is working. And he will not leave her side. And Alfred's there as well. It looks like she's going to be able to have a surgery to possibly fix things. But then here's the problem you've got Scarecrow who's raiding the GCPD and taking supplies. There's a power outage, all kinds of things 
are going haywire. So Bruce decides, all right, here's what's going to happen. We're going to do a supply drop. We're going to see if we can get a chopper in here because the government will not help Gotham. Gordon has tried and tried and tried. They won't help. So Bruce tries to send in supplies. The chopper gets shot down and all hell breaks loose at that point. And Penguin basically tries to steal the supplies along with a bunch of others. Now, luckily, there is a little bit. Barbara comes in guns blazing because, remember, she's out for blood after what happens earlier in this episode with Tabitha, with Penguin taking out Tabitha for killing his mother. And that, I mean, that was one of the most shocking things of this entire episode, seeing her go down. So Barbara is absolutely out for blood. She makes a deal with Penguin for guns, too. That's the crazy thing, is that she makes this deal, and they try to play nice. And then after this happens, Barbara loses her mind even more than she already has. So she actually ends up playing a part. This whole In the chaos, basically, Gordon ends up making out with the supplies and being able to get stuff to his people. And, they, and they've got, well, I think Lucius said something like 30 days worth of food or a couple months worth of food to sustain them. But the, uh, clearly, that's not going to be enough. But the, the main thing here is chaos. And the one that's not really involved in this is Jeremiah, because you hear Gordon say, hey, he hasn't been spotted. So this season of Gotham has been billed as No Man's Land and Frantic and The Legend of the Dark Knight. We haven't even really gotten to the Dark Knight yet, other than a rooftop meeting between Bruce and Gordon, which was really, really good. It's great foreshadowing for what I hope that we get to see this season. Basically, where we're at is the chaos. It's almost like Zero Year. If you're reading the Batman comics from Scott Snyder or Greg Capullo, it definitely has a Zero Year feel to it. A little bit and that everything is basically reset to zero and it's very much a martial law type of situation and everybody's trying to, just, to trying to just survive where they are and then you've got this you you just feel like there's one small catalyst that could happen and everybody is going to go to war all of these different clans are going to go to war and, you, and if everybody feels like they've got a little bit of a leg up on everybody else except for Gordon's crew. And everybody's trying to grab for that power. And then you see that nobody's really safe, as usual, on Gotham. Because if Tabitha's going to go down in the first episode, imagine what's going to happen from here. And I haven't even talked about Riddler yet. Because Riddler has no idea what's going on. He's having blackouts. And he thinks that Ed is trying to take back over. And there's stuff that's happening. He's waking up with dumpsters and stuff. He has no idea what's happening to him. And he's going insane. So that's exactly a perfect way to describe this first episode of season five of Gotham. And that is absolutely insane. It's frantic. It pulls you in so many different directions with so many different emotions. You root for Gordon so hard in this episode. You also root for Selena for different reasons. And you get to see Bruce start to become a hero more and more, not just as Batman, but as Bruce Wayne. He's finally been embraced as someone who can help out Gordon and his quest in the GCPD. The trust level between Gordon and Bruce Wayne is really starting to come through there. And we heard David Mazuz kind of hint at that in our interview last week. We're really starting to see that sort of blossom. And of course, you have Alfred that's going to be involved in that as well. And I mean, you know, Gordon's got his crew. He's got Harvey. He's got Lucius. But he now knows it's not enough. He needs all the help 
that he can get. I've got to tell you, I've seen a little bit of a head. I had a couple of episodes ahead of this season. You are not going to believe what's coming up. There's so It's just nonstop. This season of Gotham, I can already tell, is going to be taking your foot, smashing it on the accelerator, and just speeding through because that's how this first episode felt to me, and not in a bad way either. This is one of those things where it's going to be pedal to the metal the entire season, and yes, you are going to see some characters that you haven't seen in a while pop back up, even in the first few episodes. That's all I can really... That's all I'm going to tease for you. I'm not going to give anything away, but I, I will tease that much. But this first episode, absolutely insane. If you got to see, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Of course, give us your opinions at Down and Nerdy 757, not just from Gotham, but from Young Justice Outsiders as well. Definitely want to know what you think. That's what I thought of the season five premiere of Gotham and a little bit of a recap there as well. Up next, yep, there's still some nerd news. And we'll talk about that on the Down and Nerdy podcast. Hey, this is Hale Appleman from The Magicians, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Looks like the DC TV universe is going to be expanding. As expected, it's time for nerd news. And here's some news that should surprise no one, but was actually made official this week. Deadline reports that the CW has given an official pilot order for the Batwoman solo series. Now, of course, Ruby Rose is going to be reprising her role. David Nutter is going to be doing the directing as far as as far as the first episode is concerned. Of course, you remember David from Arrow and Flash and Game of Thrones. And Caroline, Dry- Caroline Dries is actually the one that wrote the script. And that's one of the things that really got the ball rolling, apparently, according to the report, is that the script was so good, that's what kind of pushed this to the forefront of the pilot season coming up here for this year for 2019. So it looks like this is definitely happening at this point. Now, here's the thing. We don't really know a whole lot about it beyond this point. And we can only assume, now we can't know this for sure, but the assumption is is that this will pick up around the time or after the crossovers happen, right? Because that's that seems to be the only thing that would actually make sense. And the crossover did sort of set up, you know, a possible Batwoman series where she was in you know, Wayne Tower, and she was talking about how Ruby Rose's character, uh, Kate Kane, was talking about how, you know, okay, this is how she's going to start building this up, a big real estate firm type of thing, and kind of, you know, refurbish Gotham in a way, right? Just sort of rebuild it. And that has to be one of the cornerstones of what would happen in this show. Now, here's the question, though, to me. The only question we can really talk about here is as far as speculating on everything at this point is who, who could we see in this series? And I think that, you know, you're hoping you see maybe Commissioner Gordon. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, there, there's just certain characters that I'm not sure we'll see. I, I think Tim Drake is a possibility, maybe a very outside chance, because you don't know what's going to be happening in the cinematic universe. We can only assume that anybody that's going to be in the cinematic universe is automatically going to be out of this show as far as heroes are concerned it just doesn't seem like that's a problem for villains but as far as heroes go how about this one i'm gonna throw this name out what about jason bard as far as the gcpd is concerned maybe the new 52 version of jason bard i'm not sure that the other versions the other iterations would really make sense but if you go new 52 cop from detroit comes over tries to make gotham better and this we don't have to necessarily go with the whole Replacing Jim Gordon because Jim Gordon got fired thing. You don't need to go that route. 
What you can do is make him the cop that rises through the ranks. I don't think you make him commissioner right off the jump. I think you make him a, maybe not necessarily a supporter of what Batwoman's doing, but certainly sympathetic and someone who realizes that Batwoman's doing good. I I know that's a trope, but I think you do have to follow that trope a little bit. And, And by that mention, does that bring in Vicki Vale? That's another question. Also, does that bring in Luke Fox? Who's Batwing? Could we see him on the show? Could we see Stephanie Brown? Either as Robin or Spoiler. I think Spoiler would be cool with the show only because you had that whole watchdog mentality that Batwoman had and, you know, the whole who's messing with my city thing. Bring in somebody like the Spoiler who would kind of operate outside of the norm a little bit and, and don't let them know each other right off the bat. But eventually, you know, they would come to know each other and I'm sure work together. I think that could be a cool dynamic, especially since personality-wise, the two characters would be so different. And I think that that would play off of each other really, really well. Kind of what Supergirl tried to do with the whole Kara and, and Alex dynamic, which is not really... I mean, they've become more similar over the course of the show than, than they are different at this point. But I think that having them be that different, I think that could really, really work well. But either way, I'm really excited for this Batwoman series. Can't wait to see what they're going to do with it. I think this will be a welcome addition. Or I actually think that this is a show that might replace another show that ends up leaving the lineup, whether that be Arrow deciding to end itself or maybe Legends of Tomorrow or something like that decides to end. Who knows? I just think that this show would definitely fit in well in the CW lineup. Speaking of fitting in, this is something very interesting. Polygon and multiple outlets reporting this one, that Marvel has an unannounced game that's going to be coming. That's not the news. The news is who's working on it. Second Diner. Excuse me, Second Dinner. And the people behind this, it's basically five ex-Blizzard employees. They've started their own studio, and now they have a deal already right off the bat with Marvel Entertainment. So it's very interesting that Marvel would go with a brand new company. Now, of course, this second dinner studio has been founded by Ben Brode and Hamilton Chu. Now, you might remember them from Blizzard. They worked on Hearthstone. They brought a lot of the Hearthstone team with them, too, as a matter of fact. Now, there's very, very little known about this, but one of the quotes that Polygon reported was that they said that they wanted to make deep, satisfying games that are optimized for mobile. Now, speaking of which, you remember Marvel announced recently they were shutting down Avengers Academy this year. Mobile game. But what's to stop Marvel from doing a Hearthstone-style game, right? A deck-building kind of game, if you will. But you still have some story in there. You still have maybe some cutscenes and things like that, but you give players a, a dual option of how they want to play this game. It just seems like that would be perfect. It's not Marvel's no stranger to wanting to create cards and things like that in the first place. So why not make this a game, especially with with the success of a, of a game like Hearthstone? I mean, you look at like a game like Pokemon Go, even. That's another game that I know it's not similar to Hearthstone, but still a collection-style game. Why couldn't you do something like that? I think that m- mobile gaming... Is something that Marvel's done off and on well with. And I think that Avengers Academy is a good example of that. It's a game that, you know, it started off fine. Then fans started to not like it as much. 
as it started to move and make changes. So I think that this is something that's very interesting that Marvel can look at, maybe expand themselves in the mobile market. I don't necessarily think that this is a console game. I think that that's kind of the misnomer of everything that's come out since this announcement has been talked about. I do not think this is a console game. I think that this is something that's going to be definitely more mobile-friendly, maybe more tablet-friendly than phone-friendly, if that makes any sense. I think that this will be something on a larger scale of something that we haven't really seen before from a mobile game. And bringing in a Hearthstone, really singling out the ex-Hearthstone team, I think is the news here. Because I, th- I don't think Marvel does anything without a strategic move. This tells me that this is going to be a Hearthstone-style game from Marvel that's meant to be a multiplayer-type game that many, many people could spend hours and hours and hours on their tablets and on their phones enjoying. It just seems to make sense to me that this is going to be a Hearthstone-style game. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but that's where I'm coming with that. Going to stay in the Marvel realm and talk about the Season 2 teaser trailer that came out for Marvel's Punisher. Really a couple of things came out of this. The first one is the confirmation of the release date, which is going to be January the 18th. And to me, that's Marvel saying, not Marvel, excuse me, it's Netflix saying, yeah, let's just get this over with. And it's not because the show is going to be bad, because I actually think it'll be it'll be good, and I actually think it'll be a little bit better than season one. But, I mean, you used to have to wait a little bit, and I know it, it, it's, it's been a decent enough time since, it was what, October? When Daredevil came out, and now you're talking about January, okay, that's a few months, but it used to be at least six months. We're not even waiting that long anymore. So it's like, okay, let's just get this over with. We'll let it do well or not do well, and then we're going to cancel it because that's what's inevitably going to happen. And and maybe that's the cynic in me, but as a fan, let's just take it from a fan's perspective. How else are you supposed to feel? Daredevil could not have been better. That still got canceled. It doesn't matter how good Punisher is going to be. This thing is canceled. It's on borrowed time. And I hate to say that, but I don't know how else to feel. I mean, I feel like I need to be proven wrong on that point at this point. But the other thing that came out of this was the first look at Jigsaw, Billy Russo's transformation into Jigsaw. And, that, and, and not only that, but the Punisher kind of accepting Frank Castle saying, okay, I'm the Punisher. This is what I'm supposed to be. I'm going to go ahead and be this now. But you see the kind of t- crazy transformation for Russo into Jigsaw, and there were reports saying that he wasn't going to be called Jigsaw on the show, but it certainly seemed like the teaser made it seem like he was going to be called Jigsaw, right? I mean, we didn't we kind of go through the same thing with Daredevil, where it didn't look like Bullseye was going to be called Bullseye, and then that ended up happening anyway, not over, not a ton, but at least a couple times anyway. If, as far as I remember, maybe I could be wrong because I've got a four-year-old and my, and my brain cells are getting less and less by the day with all the lack of sleep. But I seem to recall that happening. But it it really almost doesn't matter if they call him Jigsaw or not. I'll say the look is good. It's creepy. It's exactly what I was hoping for if they were going to go with that transformation of this character. And if this is the last season, man, just go down in a blaze of glory. Just, just be this balls-to-the-walls, just constant action series that you can be. I mean, there's depth of story there with Frank Castle. We know that Karen Page is going to be a part of this, so maybe we'll see a little bit of a continuation of what we saw in Daredevil. Maybe we will see Matt Murdock again, not necessarily Daredevil, but Matt Murdock. 
it's just going to be very interesting to see what the tone of this series is going to be. It's almost like, to me, if I'm doing this second season of Punisher, I'm going in knowing this is it for us. So I'm just going to go all out. And I'm going to pull out all the stops because it doesn't matter what you do, good or bad. You might as well go for it and take some risks. At least that's how I feel about it anyway. So hopefully that is exactly the tone that they're going to take because I think that Punisher definitely has a chance to be something special here. And I hope that they definitely take that route. Here's a really, really feel-good story as far as I'm concerned. And that is Oni Press announcing Sarah Gatiss is their new editor-in-chief. Now, you might remember she was with IDW for a while. She was also with DC, I think, for like seven years. And she is someone that is very well-liked, very well-respected. She was kind of in focusing more on their licensed properties, of which, I mean, you've got Invader Zim, you've got Rick and Morty, there's a ton more in there as well. But I think that that was a lot of where Oni, Oni Press's strength was starting to become, and you start to see these very creative ideas that were coming from their licensed properties, and I think that that is in no small measure to Sarah joining that team, and now what you're going to have is the oversight of the entire publishing arm of Oni Press, and I think that what we're going to see is something that Oni Press has always been known for, and that is that uniqueness of story. And I'm not saying that they got away from that at all, but it seemed like under Sarah's watch, things just seemed to get a little bit more creative at Oni Press. And I just the outpouring on social media alone, of people that were so happy for her and respect her so much, and so many people that speak highly of her, you kind of feel like Oni Press is really, really making out in this deal. And it's almost like it's almost like when your sports team, you know, signs that big free agent, right? Or you get somebody that's done well for you. you know, like you like you have it. She's not a rookie, so this might be a bad comparison. But you know, you get a person that's just joined the team and you realize how good they really are. Like, we gotta lock them up. We gotta keep them here. We gotta keep them in the building. Now you've made her editor in chief. You're keeping her in the building and you're and you're seeing that, well, if she can do this for our licensed properties, why are we not having her do this? for our properties and for some creator-owned stuff at Oni Press as well. And Oni Press, I can tell you, they they have a presence. They had a presence at San Diego Comic-Con. I've just only started working more closely with Oni Press myself this past year in 2018. So, But from what I've seen so far, there's always been there's already been a slight difference since the very beginning when I first started working with them to more recently. It just seems like Something just feels like it's changing. Something just feels like it's getting better. And I think that this is something that definitely gets them noticed. And it's very difficult to get noticed right now in comics. And you need somebody that loves comics enough to know how to bring great stories and pick the right stories to bring to your readers because that's one of one of the main functions I think she's going to be a part of is that if somebody's got to create her own title and they're looking for a place to publish said title, you need to sell creators on that. It's just as much the, the other way around. I mean, you know, creators have to shop their projects to publishers, but it's just as much of a responsibility of the editor-in-chief to look at a title and go, you know what? This one's right for us. Because just because it might be right doesn't necessarily it's, means it's right for you 
as the publisher. And I think that that's one of the things that she's going to be mainly responsible for. And I wouldn't be surprised to see some very unique projects coming to Oni Preston. I'm excited for her. Congratulations to her. It's, it's great to see a woman as an editor-in-chief as well. I think that that is something that the industry has sorely needed as well. And I hope that she carries that flag for more women in the comics industry. I'd like to see more of that coming up. So I, I'm just, I, I, have a, I have a really good feeling that some great things are going to be coming to Oni Press in the future. It's going to be, it's going to do it for Nerd News up next. Yep, it's time to talk about this coming season of The Magicians. We'll talk to the cast and producers next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Summer Bischel from The Magicians, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It might be season four of The Magicians, but it almost feels like everything is brand new again. Remember what the events of what happened last season, and everybody's different. It's all these different characters to talk about. So, got a chance to sit down with the cast and producers at San Diego Comic-Con this past year, and I got to tell you, there there was certainly a lot of, you know, we don't really want to spoil anything, but there was certainly a lot of information we got as well, especially with John McNamara, executive producer, and Sarah Gamble, when they both sat down at the table, and my first question to them was, well, you know, where do we pick up? In this first episode. Where do we pick up in this first episode? Um, um, Very few people know who they are. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they, don't, they don't know their own identities. Mm-hmm. Um, Margot thinks she's Janet. Josh thinks he's Isaac. An Uber driver. Um, Quentin, my yeah. favorite, thinks he's Brian, the literature professor. Right. <laughs> Alice knows what's going on, but she is locked in a prison in the library. So... Um, it's an it's a very interesting first episode for us, just simply because our characters have no fucking clue who they are. So the first order of business is to situate them in a world with magic and yeah. have them try to figure out what to do about that. So it's a fun challenge. Kind of fun because Gene Fogg has really played an important role and has made kind of a devil's bargain with the library. So and the McAllisters, which he has to, you know, like a lot of diplomatic agreements, it's very, very, very flawed and has a lot of different blowback. So it should be fun. The next question for the two of them was, how different are these characters from their normal selves? Some of them look a little bit like, but it's almost, it almost feels like a coincidence if they would look like, you know, they just look very different. Um, certain things remain the same, however. This is a spoiler, but like, Isaac doesn't know that magic is real. He's just like, surge pricing, Ubers, living my life. Um, Josh has sexually transmitted lycanthropy. Um, and that's not something that Isaac can disclose because he's not aware he has it. So a lot of stuff like that starts to come up. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, someone asked the executive producers, will the storyline actually play out throughout the entire season? I think that everything you see at the end of season one, which really is two distinct kind of um, storylines that will, that will merge. One is the library is not bad, but they're not good. They're they're kind of just like they're very they're a very they're very certain they know what's best for all of us, whether we want to to be included in that or not. And the other is the monster in LA. And those two stories definitely move forward through the season and they I think without spoiling it, um, I hope. They they converge in a way that I hope is we hope is unexpected. They have they have a, they have a shared history and they have a shared future. 
Next to sit down with us was the lovely Stella Maeva, of course, plays Julia on the show. And the first question for her is, how did she actually feel about the end of season three? Like, everyone's like, how do you feel about the end of season three? I'm like, I'm perpetually disappointed. Like, I want to go back. <laughs> I want it to continue. But um, Julia seems okay with it. But, man, being a god, I don't know. Not like everybody's dream. Next up, I had to ask Stella that even though she gave up her goddess powers, was it actually nice to have her end something on her own terms for a change? To finally have, get her to be able to end something on her own terms instead of having all the bad stuff always happen to her? Yeah, I, I think the through line for season three was like acceptance for her. I think that's like what's so cool. It's like she was able to just kind of like accept everything that happened to her. And, and, and you know, like as human beings, we have things taken from us and, and, and then we have gifts given to us. And it's like, at the end of the day, like awful, like terrible things can happen, and then trivial things can happen, and then beautiful things can happen. But at the end of it, acceptance is like the is the key, right? To accept where you are in the here and now. And I feel like she she was able to do that in season three. So I admire that about her. Like I, I feel like right on. I I hope to do that. You know, just acceptance. That's like the daily goal, right? Stella Maeve was talking about how she is a fan of the books. Now, when she read the books, did she know what character she was going to play? I loved Janet. I loved Janet. And I thought she was so cool. And I thought I would have been better fit for that. So it's funny that that we wound up with Julia. And I didn't audition for Janet or anything. It was always just kind of like, I had worked with Sarah about five years ago. And then like called back for, you know, they called me about the project. They said, is this something you'd be interested in? And we read it. We read Julia. And of course, like, you know, after reading them full-fledged, she's got such an incredible, all the women are like incredible. But yeah, I think, I think they've got some really cool, strong women. You remember one of the things we saw last season was a new version of Penny that's kind of in love with Julia. So is that something we're going to see how play out more this season? Do you ever play that game when you were younger, like, am I hot or am I cold? Like, you're hot, hotter, hot, yeah. hot, 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 like Marco Polo, Mark, Marco Polo. You're like, you're, you're, you're hot. You're, you're really hot. You're very hot. Like, you're close. You're like on to something. Maybe. You're like burning up. There you go. That's all. That was a good one. Answer. That was good, right? Yeah. And kind of like, kind of like didn't give anything away. But We've had a lot of guests from the Magicians on the Down and Nerdy podcast before, but never Olivia Taylor Dudley, of course, plays Alice on the show. And so when she sat down, I had to jump at the chance to have her talk about the rises and falls in Alice's story over the course of the seasons. Do you think that kind of rises and falls, though, just kind of like your character arcs rise and sure. throughout the show? Yeah. I think Alice this year is going through a bit of a redemption story and trying to redeem herself in the eyes of her friends, um, if she ever finds them. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of going back to season one, Alice, with the way I'm approaching her. She thought she, she's been through a lot of trauma and a lot of things, and... You know, she comes always from her brain, but I think it's failed her, especially in the last season. She thought she knew what the answer was, and she was apparently wrong. So now she's kind of like, oh, I don't know anything, so now what? And that's kind of how I'm approaching her this season, which is a lot like Alice season one. It's more of an innocent Alice. Um, but I also don't know where they're going with the season. We've only gotten the first few scripts, but yeah. I like to switch up Alice all the time. Um, I think she's complex, and I like to play a different version of her every year. Next question was asked to Olivia, talking about Alice and the death of her father and asking if that was a driving force and the choice that Alice made last season to try and kill magic. I think that was a huge piece of it. I mean, her seeing what happened as a mythin and, and the destruction that magic can have, 
was the drive, the main driving force, and I think her dad was a horrible thing that had happened, and it just just drove home her reason for fighting to kill Magic. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sad her dad died. Um, I don't know if we dealt with it as much as we should, but um, you know, there's a lot of stories to deal with on this show. <laughs> This was one of those questions we weren't sure we were going to get an answer to when we talked to Olivia Taylor Dudley about Alice. And the question was, will Alice actually play a role in everyone finding their identities again? I don't, can't really go into detail about how they find their identities again, but it's all Alice cares about is getting helping them and making sure they survive. But um, it's going to be a little while before you see all of them with Alice. Another very interesting question someone asked was that, is there a version of Alice that she enjoyed playing or were excited to play? I don't know. I'm really excited for people to see Alice in jail because I'm, I'm in jail for a while and I get to work with some pretty awesome other characters that I can't reveal, which sucks because they're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it was fascinating to get to work in a jail cell by myself with other actors either outside or in my head. Just... It was a different acting exercise this season. It brings out different sides of Alice yet again. I can't help myself. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I can't say too much. But. My last question to Olivia Taylor Dudley was, is Alice's innocence something that she wishes she had back? Do you think that innocence that you mentioned is something that she wishes she could have back yeah. at some point? Yeah, I think so. I actually think all of our characters wish they had that back. Uh, I think all of us do. <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. I think she went She went hard last season. She was lost. She knew she was lost last year. But she just grasped onto any kind of intellectual thing she could hold on to because that's her comfort zone. And she thought, well, magic is magic. i got to get rid of magic. That's the one thing I can think of. That's the only thing I think that can help. And I think now she just realizes, I don't know anything. I thought I did. I'm not the smartest person in the world. Nobody is. So I'm just going to sit back and just try to figure this out from a new set of eyes, if that makes sense. When Summer Bischel sits down with you, you know you're in for a good time talking about Queen Margot. But speaking of that, the first question for her was, how frustrating is it to finally be elected queen and then just lose your memory? You know, I, I've said it before, and, and I'll say it again. I, I, I can't lie and say when I found out my memory was going to be wiped and I wouldn't have this chance to explore being king. and I sort of like, you know, marinate in her accomplishment and how far she has evolved. Obviously, I was like bums about that. But when you've been doing a show for four years, you want to be challenged and you want to do new and different things or else, you know, you're not growing anymore. And for me, I, I've never been result-driven as far as um, how I approach my performances because you'll never be happy if, if you want people to like it or, or you want to get another job because of it. Um, so for me, the process is what I really enjoy. And if the process isn't evolving and I'm not growing with what I'm doing, I'm no longer interested. So it was sad, but also uh, good in a way. These new identities are definitely something that we talked about a lot. And one of the questions was, are we seeing these characters in the life that they might have had if magic never existed? 
I can only speak for my character, but as Janet, and, and I just said this, for me the choice I made as an actor was, uh, I still am who I am at my core, all that's changed is my knowledge that magic is real or that I am a magician. So Margot still had a life before break bills or before she knew magic was real and her identity and her mannerisms and her um, core needs and, and motivations and faults are still there. So I'm still who I am, but without something that really did define the character. So, you know, Janet's not as fearless. She gets she gets spooked a lot easier. I made the decision because I think, you know, confronting magical circumstances probably made Margot pretty fearless over time. But Janet doesn't have those experiences. So small tweaks here and there. Um, but yes, I do think she would have been in fashion and I and I have seen a lot of lines that I was super excited about. She's still a champion of change and she still feels very strongly about a lot of things that are important to her and that are important in, in you know, I don't want to spoil anything, but are, things need to change in, in the world of fashion as well and she's championing some of those changes as well. So I think if you ask any fan of the magicians, they're going to tell you that the relationship between Elliot and Margot is something that, you know, we all love. So one of the questions was, does she feel that with everything that's happening with Elliot and the monster and all that, is this actually a chance for Margot or even Janet to have interactions with some more characters? I do, I do. And I think it's, just, and more importantly, an opportunity for the audience to see some of those relationships. Um, and there, you know, I, I remember a scene I did with Olivia season one that I, I felt was so fun and so interesting and, and, and me and her enjoyed doing it. And it would have been nice to see more scenes with her and I. Um, so yeah, it, it is going to provide ample opportunity um, to see them separated and, and Margot or Janet's growth without that relationship. You know that I've talked about this on the show before. I love the pop culture references on The Magician, so I had to ask Summer Bischel, will Janet still drop some of those fun pop culture references? At the same time, Elliot and Margot always kind of had their own language and there's all kinds of pop culture references and things like that. It's one of the yeah. reasons I love the show so much. Yeah. So is Janet going to exhibit a little bit of that, or is that something we're going to have to miss a little bit? Oh, no. It's still there, because she still observes those the world the same way Margot would, but without this proof that magic is real. Everything she processes is still through her lens. Um, so there's definitely that, you know, yeah, the Stark is alive and well. And I wish I could talk more about it, but it, it, yeah, there's a scene that I'm particularly excited about that involves both cultural, popular cultural references and a creature. So it's very exciting. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing I wanted to ask Summer was, you know, we've seen her talk a lot about Margot's look on social media, and I had to know if she had a favorite. You talked a lot, especially on Twitter, about Margot's look. Uh-huh. Is there a favorite? Can you pick a favorite? I can't really pick a favorite. It's tough. It, that's... There's been so many. There's been so many that I've seen in the room or in fittings that I'm like, 
I love my cosplay. I, she, she's a genius. She can do no wrong. I can say nothing but but wonderful things about her, and I trust her completely. But sometimes I've seen things on me and be like, well, that's kooky. Um, but then I see it on camera, and it's just so cool. And and it always looks different than it does in person. And, um, it's just so hard to pick one. And it, it, now Janet's in fashion, so it's equally as beautiful and interesting. I just never know that there, that there was so much eye patch game out there. I don't know, right? I don't think there was. And I think that was very important to Mogli, our costume designer. I think she wanted to put some sass in the patch game. You know? And I'm glad she did. It's always interesting with Hale Appleman, and we're not necessarily talking about Elliot this season, but are we? So the first question was, will we actually see Elliot at all this season? You're not going to see the monster isn't Elliot. The monster is a completely different character. So you're you're gonna you're gonna see maybe something that you don't expect, and maybe hopefully you won't uh, regret <laughs> the the decision making of you know losing Elliot. I don't know. See, the truth is that I, I, Elliot's gone for as, as far as I've seen in the scripts. So hopefully he'll he'll come back soon. But um, at this point, I got nothing. So you're you might be stuck with the monster for a while. And I don't know where Elliot is. And I and you don't know what's what the monster is going to do at any given moment. So you're kind of set up for um, for the rug to be pulled out from under you at any given moment. Um, yeah, he's uh, he's a nine-year-old without any empathy or impulse control, a lot of power. and a lot of power, ungodly power yeah. or godly power. He's scary, you guys. Yeah, but he's very innocent. He doesn't know any better. He's just doing what he thinks. He, he's just doing what he needs to do in order to feel okay. We know how amazing Hale is in front of the camera, but a question was asked to him, would he actually like to get behind the camera and direct any episodes at some point? I would hope so, yeah. I mean, I there's a whole protocol that, that, that you kind of have to follow in order for that to be possible, at least on our show. Um, it's very competitive to get a slot directing on our show, and um, I think that I would need to direct my own short film and, you know, have, have a little bit of experience under my belt uh, for that to be a reality. Um, but but that's not out of the realm of possibility in the next couple of years, assuming we were, you know, continue for that long. Um, and and I, I do have half a mind to shadow someone this season um, if, if that opportunity is afforded to me. If there's an episode in which I don't have that much to do, I might continue to uh, to see that through. Yeah, that's something that definitely is, is in the back of my head. For sure. We certainly know about the differences between Elliot and the monster, but what about the physical differences? That was one of the things that was asked of him. There's definitely like a slightly different, like very subtle makeup palette that's that's you know gone into creating him. Um, he has a little bit of like just a little like red around his eyes, it's sort of like like a like a baby mole rat, you know, or something. Um, <laughs> And his hair is long-ish, as you can probably guess. Um, I don't know if that will change over the course of the season. I know our um, our hair, the head of hair, has had some conversations with me about where she'd like to see it go. But the word, the jury's out on whether that will, you know, end up. It's funny the things that you that happen inside these press rooms that you don't expect, and one of those things was a really fun across the table interaction between Hale Appleman and Jason Ralph. Just go ahead and give this one a listen. Hey, what's up, Ralph? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Miss you. Bye. Yeah. 
together. I know. Why aren't you here right now? <laughs> but you also just like you know, you're just you know, you're just like you're like there's like a ten foot pole between us right now. And that's I was trying to talk about how nice our It is. It's great. Yeah, we have. They are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do that too in these interviews, and then you know, back to reality. Yeah. You know. <laughs> back to reality. Hi, Ralph. That's my work husband, Jason Ralph. Um, just kidding. We don't like each other. Um, uh, so yeah. So where were we? I don't know. I just feel like that's a very appropriate way to close out. Our chat about The Magician Season 4, which is going to be coming to Sci-Fi on Wednesday, January the 23rd at 9 p.m. Eastern. Always watch out, though, for Sci-Fi.com or on the Sci-Fi app. These things have a way of getting released early. You saw what happened with Deadly Class, so just keep your eyes open for that. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I can't rule it out either. And it's just, I always look forward to The Magician's coming back every year. One of my favorite episodes of 2018 was the episode with Quentin and with Elliot putting the puzzle together in the quest for the keys. I still think that's one of the strongest episodes, not only of the show, but I've seen of any show in the last few years. And The Magicians never disappoints in any episode that I've seen. I can't wait to see what they're going to do to reinvent themselves in season four. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to everyone involved with sci-fi and The Magicians for giving me a chance to chat with the cast and the producers. It was amazing. It was a lot of fun. You want to find out more info about this show, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. You can always follow us on social media, facebook.com slash downandnerdy, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds.